I remember hearing a story about a second grade teacher of an art class. He told her young students, you're now free to draw whatever you want. She gave them their paints and, and they began to paint and she'd go from one to another and give them a little advice and ask what they were doing. She came over to this one boy and he was really going at it. He was painting furiously. You ever seen a kid when he's into it and his tongue kind of out of his mouth? And, and she was looking at what he was doing and couldn't make heads or tails out of it. And she said, uh, what are you painting? He said, I'm painting God. She said, well, nobody knows what God looks like. He said, exactly. Now they will. <laughs> and our message today is talking about a very important subject. Can you prove that God exists? Can you prove? This is the big question. This is one of the most important things that uh, people could ever talk about. Now, you may have heard of the Large Hadron Collider, the biggest and most expensive scientific experiment in the world is located 300 feet beneath the countryside on the border of Switzerland and France. And I've been in that region before. It is a 17-mile-long tunnel. They use the same boring equipment they use for making the channel between France and England to bore this tunnel. It's an instrument but it com is composed of a tunnel 17 miles in a circle filled with the most powerful electric magnet accelerators that scientists can muster. It's operated by the European Organization for Nuclear Research. And the aim of it all is they're looking for the mystery of the smallest part of matter that holds everything together. They call it, named after some of the people who theorized it, the Higgs boson. Its nickname is, who knows, the God particle. They built this multi-billion dollar instrument to discover the God particle. Well, they conducted a number of experiments between 2005 and 2017, and they say they believe that they found it. With 99% accuracy, they believe they've discovered the smallest subatomic particle that allows all other particles in the universe to bond together. And they say if it wasn't for that particle, nothing would exist. And therefore, they call it the God particle. Man searching for God in the smallest matter. But is there a God? Now, we're in church. So, you know, sort of a rhetorical question here. Do we believe there's a God? And if so, why? How do you prove it? You know, that's an important question today because it seems like, if you can believe the surveys, there's a growing number of people who do not believe in God. The American Religious Identification Survey found in 1990, 86% of American adults identified as Christians, compared with only 76% in 2008. And that number seems to be declining. Pew Research Center, they did a 2014 religious landscape study. They found that 3.1% of Americans say that they're atheists. That's up 1.6% in a study that they did in 2007. And an additional 4.0 Americans call themselves agnostic, agnostics, up from 2.4 in 2007. 
So it seems like atheism and agnosticism is rising and the number of people who believe in Christianity and God is declining. But don't misunderstand, still vastly over 90% of people in North America believe in God. Did you know that? So don't let the media, some are agnostic, some are unchurched, some don't believe in Christianity, but as far as believing in God, about 90% still do. So don't get discouraged. Maybe I should define an atheist as someone who believes, I'm sorry, a person who disbelieves or they lack belief in the existence of God or gods. An agnostic, on the other hand, is a person who claims neither faith or a disbelief in God. It means, you know, they don't know without knowledge, agnostis. Uh, atheist is against theo, theos, believing in God. Now, some of you have maybe seen some of the very beautifully produced BBC um, nature programs by David Attenborough. And because he often talks about evolution, some assumed he was an atheist. But when asked if he was an atheist, he said, no, of course not. And they said, well, you know, all that you said about um, nature and evolution, he said, you saying you believe in God? He said, well, I'm just saying I, it would be foolish for me to say. Because he said, the universe is so big, and I'm paraphrasing, the universe is so big, it's millions of light years across. What we see is just so small. And we've learned so much in recent years for us to say we know there is no God with the little perspective of the universe that we have now is like an ant on top of a termite hill saying, I now understand the universe. Which I thought was a, a humble and appropriate response. So could be why the Bible says it's the fool who says there is no God with some certainty. Um, at least we should say, well, we don't know, or I may not know, or at least admit you don't believe, or say I don't want to believe. But uh, it is a growing problem. Now you may know, or you may not know, the Bible never attempts to prove the existence of God. The Bible begins by assuming the existence of God. It says, in the beginning, God. And it doesn't take any time to argue that there was a God. It's assuming that you will recognize that there is a God. So obviously, uh, I'm not suggesting that if you meet somebody that doesn't believe in God, that you say, well, you need to because the Bible says so. Uh, how many of us know people that don't believe in God and they don't believe in the Bible? So you're going to have to have another starting point, right? You can't just go and say, well, you should believe in God. Why? Well, the Bible says so. Well, that's sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So in the next few minutes, I'd like to give you about seven reasons that I believe there is a God. And I think I've got a picture on the screen you maybe saw a moment ago in England. Uh, they ran a bunch of ads, some atheists in England ran some ads and that said, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. And uh, Dawkins, the famous atheist, uh, took a picture with a, a girlfriend in front of that poster. Uh, just enjoy life. There is no God. Now that, I think, is at the foundation of the reason some people don't want to believe in God because if there is a God, then maybe there's some morality and some laws and we're accountable for the lives that we live. So some people are highly motivated to get God out of the equation because it troubles their conscience. But if you're dealing with 
people who do not believe the Bible, and there are some sincere people who have been brought up to believe that, you know, everything just happened by accident. There is no God. I was one of them. I don't know how sincere I was, but I really didn't know. And uh, I needed answers outside of the Bible. Seven things. One, just the way the cosmos and our solar system are all ordered tell us there must be a designer. The Bible even says, if you want to use the Bible, it says you can look outside the Bible to believe in God. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. You can look up and see evidence for God. Recently, Eric Metaxas, he wrote a bold article for the Wall Street Journal titled, Science Increasingly Makes the Case for God. And he comes up with about seven different points where in just the natural world around us, in the planet, in the solar system, we see evidence that there must be a design or there'd be no life on Earth. First point, our planet is, is as exactly the right distance from the sun, so the temperatures on our planet are conductive to life. If we were a little closer to the sun, we'd burn. There's no life on Mercury. It's too hot. We would be molten. You get too far from the sun and you're a ball of ice like some of the moons of Jupiter. Um, and so we're just precisely the right distance so the oceans don't boil away and the, or neither do they all freeze. There's a very precise balance. We are the perfect distance from our moon and it has the perfect orbit to create moving tides and circulation of the air to avoid the stagnation of the seas, and many plants and animals reproduce based on the lunar orbit. If the Earth was a little too close to the moon as it swept around the planet, we'd have just one continual tidal wave, a, a perpetual tsunami wiping everything out. But it's just the right distance where there's a gentle motion of the tides that circulates the oceans and helps create the climate. And as I said, many species procreate based on where the moons are. And Karen and I and the boys were in Belize. We wanted to see the great whale sharks. And they said, it's the full moon. You've got to look for them. They come to the surface. When the fish are spawning with the full moon, they come up. So much life in the planet is governed by this, this lunar cycle. Even plants. When I lived up in the mountains in the cave, some of you read my book at one time. I I took a, a drug called Jimson Weed. It's called Deadly Nightshade, and I don't recommend it. But I tell you, it's an it's a unusual plant in that it doesn't bloom for the sun. It blooms for the moon, which is why they call it nightshade. And I remember seeing the spiral flower open for the moon at night, and it closes in the day. And it's, just, it's incredible the delicate balance that the planets have on Earth. We have the right atmospheric pressure for liquid water on the surface. A perfect gravitational equation for water to appear in all of its forms, ice, gas, and liquid. Plants, animals, humans, all consist mostly of water. About two-thirds of the human body is water. You'll see why the characteristics of water are uniquely suited to life. Water is a perfect universal solvent for cleaning inside and out. It allows various chemicals, minerals, and nutrients to be carried throughout our bodies into the smallest blood vessels. And water is uh, just a miracle. Just think about it. 
Water freezes on top. It doesn't freeze from the bottom up. It freezes from the top down, which is so fish can live under it during the cold seasons. And if we were again too close to the sun, it would just vaporize and turn to steam. It's a perfect balance. We have the perfect ingredients, the right balance of heavy elements and organic molecules for life to thrive on the planet. Earth is the perfect size for the right amount of gravitational pull. But just suppose that you ever seen the old uh, pictures of the lunar landings when the astronauts are on the moon? You've seen it before. You know, they're kind of going, and they're bouncing like this. He said, I can't do it because I have gravity. <laughs> Can you imagine if there wasn't enough gravity here on Earth? We'd be just, you'd float, you'd jump, and you'd float away. And so the, there has to be the right balance. But if you were on Jupiter, you'd be flat because you'd be crushed by the gravitational pull. So isn't it interesting that all the exploration we've done in our solar system and all we know, we have not found any other life. I know you watch programs that talk about E.T., and being captured. And there is no evidence that there is a planet that we have found yet that is sending us signals. Because it is miraculous that our planet was perfectly designed for life. Where did it get that design? Life sustains and repairs itself. Why do our bodies heal? Our planet seems to heal itself if given an opportunity. Our, our planet has the perfect amount of water for both oceans and continents. Even though 90% of the water on Earth is salt water, God has created in the environment a process of evaporation where it distills the clean water from the salt water, rains the fresh water all around the planet. I mean, all of this is a miracle when you think about it. Metaxas argues this incredibly rare, outlandishly unexpected process given all the factors needed to occur in just the right confluence of circumstances, that at least our solar system must have been specifically designed and calibrated to give rise to us. Otherwise, the odds of us coming to be would be so infinitesimally small that it's unreasonable to believe it could have happened by chance. And not just that there would be a planet with a piece of life, but look at the incredible diversity of life that coexists. You start doing the math on that. I'm getting ahead of myself because math is one of the reasons too. Dr. Arno Penzias, still alive today, Nobel Prize winner for the discovery of microwaves. He said, astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing and delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. In the absence of an absurd, improbable accident, the observations of modern science seem to suggest underlying, one might say, there is a supernatural plan. Science really tells us. You know, I always think it's, it's funny if it wasn't so sad when you see a different nature program and they speak as though Mother Nature has a mind. Look at how nature has designed this to happen and that to happen. I'm going... Does nature think? Does, you're saying that there's something out there that's thinking and planning. Clearly there's plan involved. But they say, don't call it God. Whatever you do, don't call it God. But obviously, I mean, just think about how evolution could explain the intricacies of our bodies and how a piece of skin would eventually start through exposure to light turning into an eyeball. 
Even Darwin said the eyeball mystifies him. He can't find any scenario or scheme where it would develop itself. And that's just one of many functions and organs. That, you know what I've always said is that um, for me, sex is proof of God. I usually don't hear pastors say that. But I used to believe in evolution, and I used to believe that, you know, one day through some strange process that's never been duplicated, single cells appeared, and when that cell wanted to start a family, somehow it pulled itself into two pieces. Where in the scheme of evolution would there ever be the need for two separate genders to decide to get along and cooperate in order to procreate? That is so inefficient. Did you hear what I'm saying? I mean, if, if I could just say, well, I'm going to start my own family, and to split, and you got two ducks. <laughs> and that'd be a lot easier for me to have to go hunt around and find somebody else to get along with Doug. And if you ask evolutionists about that, they'll say, well, you know, that's to, to increase the gene pool. How would a single cell know, you know, I'm going to have to start reproducing differently so I can get better genes? I mean, you think about it, there's no way. I've never heard a good explanation for that, for gender. But God designed things where... There's a cooperative act of love to procreate. And um, ultimately, you know, you got parents to raise the offspring, whether it's man or animal. So that was just point number one on cosmology. Some of them are shorter, so cheer up. <laughs> then you've got biology. And I just touched on this a little bit. Abiogenesis, or informally the idea of life arising from non-living matter such as simple organic compounds, has never been observed. There's not a single solitary, no matter what you've heard, there is not a single solitary case anywhere in the observable world where we have seen life arising from non-life. You cannot take a piece of rock and plant it and get a sunflower plant. Even a seed. You can't make a seed, something simple. Now, when they first started teaching this idea of spontaneous generation, or the idea that life arrives from non-life, they'd look at a cell and say, oh, you know, it, it looks like a little bit of mush. They were looking under primitive telescopes, and all they saw was what you see in an egg. They saw there's this, a wall, there's a protoplasm, there's a nucleus, and they said, maybe that could happen by itself. But now, with their super microscopes, they look at a cell, and this is a cross-section of a simple cell, and there, there's um, a virtual city of factories and activity and chemical reactions that are taking place and all these machines that are in there using machines, they're biological, but they're moving around and they swim and they propel themselves and they talk, they have language where they're talking to the other machines saying, we need a little more of this, no, less of that. No, the cell has got so much going on. The idea that lightning might hit a piece of water and develop one of those is beyond absurd. Biology in plants, in animals, uh, is a miracle that makes it very clear that there was a design involved. There had to be a creator. And you are composed of billions of those little things that are all talking to each other. And do you realize you can have one single fertilized cell, the moment after fertilization takes care, you've got one cell of life. Do you realize in that one microscopic thing, it's saying, uh, this is going to be Bill. He's going to have red hair. 
He's going to have green eyes. His teeth are going to be strong. His heart is going to be average. <laughs> he's going to be roughly this tall. And he's going to be quicker than most. I mean, he just all this interesting information. And Bill's going to have freckles. And it's all contained in the DNA of one single cell. All that information stored. Yep. Lightning hit a puddle and made Bill. How could you have that? It's just impossible. There's no example of life coming from non-life anywhere. God said, Let the earth bring forth a living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth, each according to their kind. Now I just talked about Bill's first cell, the first cell of Bill. And you put that here, and then you say, okay, now you've got your dog named Spot. You got its first cell. You line it up right next to Bill's cell. And then you've got your fish called Bubbles. And you take your goldfish, that first cell of life, first fertilized cell of Bubbles. And you put it here next to Bill and to Spot. And you start lining up all the different species of animals. And when you look at those cells, and you realize it's just a simple cell. But you know what it's going to become? No matter how you mix them up, Bill is not going to become Bubbles. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? God made them after their kind. Do we observe evolution in the world? Yes. Microevolution. Darwin saw microevolution. He saw finches on Galapagos that developed their beaks differently so they could eat different kinds of food, but they were all finches. There is not a single example you can see anywhere in the world of macroevolution where a cat turns into an alligator. Because they are different kinds. There are little cats and there are lions. They're all cats. See what I'm saying? And so we have not one single example in the world. And yet the whole world is being taught, I don't believe in conspiracies, but if there was a conspiracy, this would be it. That there are information Taliban in certain universities that refuse to allow any other view than the view that there is no God. And they are brutal on anybody who says, but, you know, the evidence, and they try to shut them down. When John Adams, one of our first presidents, said, facts are very stubborn things. And you can't get rid of them so easily. So biology. All life on the planet grows out of existing life. In all of recorded history, there is no case where we observe life suddenly and spontaneously springing from non-life. And for those who believe in evolution, if that happened once, then why, with all of our laboratories, are we not able to replicate it one time, let alone it happening billions of times all over the world? We can't make it happen once, because God did it. There has to be a God. Then you've got philosophy. Now, I'm not a great philosopher, but I did listen to a series of 32 tapes on philosophy, and I hoped I, I learned a little bit about it. But uh, I'll try and, some of it is so deep that it's just almost mindless. Uh, but very simply, there are things which come into existence. Premise one. To everything that comes into existence is caused to exist by something else. It is obvious that nothing can cause itself to come into existence because to do that, it would first need to exist to cause itself to come into existence. <laughs> this is what philosophy does all day long. <laughs> are, are, are you with me still? This is... So 
if you exist, there is something that caused your existence, and you are not what caused your existence, though some of you wish you were. <laughs> you would like to be your own God. But you would have to exist first to cause your own existence, right? And so there, no matter how you cut it, there is going to be a point at which you say, where was the first domino that was pushed, that created the run of dominoes that you see going all over the world? There was an initial cause. Now, whether you're uh, an evolutionist or whether you're uh, a theologian, they both agree that there was an initial cause. Some call it a big bang. And they say that all that you see in the universe around you, the last theory I read, it changes all the time, came from a piece of matter smaller than the head of a pin that exploded. But you've got to ask that question. Why did it suddenly choose to explode? What caused that little piece of matter? What caused it to explode? There's got to be an initial creator of that little pinpoint. Doesn't matter how small the evolutionists make it, they keep saying, but it was so small. Will you give me that? Where did it come from? And so you, you have one of two choices. There is an either, an, either an ever-existing designer, and we cannot explain it, and there's design and purpose, or without a designer, everything came from nothing for no reason. That's what evolution teaches, which is really sad, which means there's no purpose. So if you're going to have a purpose, if there's any meaning to life, you must have an intelligent creator, a God at the beginning of it all. That's philosophy. We know the universe was caused to exist by something outside of it. Still talking about the philosophy point. We see no example in our observable universe of something coming from nothing. For the complexity of life on our planet to exist and interact with perfect dependence and symbiotic cycles, logic tells us there must be an intelligence behind it all. Then you've got point number four. Mathematics. Now I'll admit I'm a little bit out of my league now because it wasn't my best field going through school. I did very well in history, but not so good in math. But I do remember Isaac Newton, who was considered among the greatest mathematicians as well as physicists of the 17th century. Other physicists sought his help in finding mathematical equations that would help predict the workings of the solar system. He found these answers in mathematical laws, and he did that in the laws of gravity based on his discovery of calculus. All the space missions depend on Isaac Newton's science of calculus to predict how they can orbit these vehicles and use the gravitational pull of a certain amount of mass to then sling them back, whether it's a satellite going off like the Voyager 1 and 2 that have now left our solar system, they, they basically were able to sling themselves using the, the force of gravity after orbiting these planets or the lunar missions that returned back to Earth. All those mathematical equations, they gave us great dependability to say this is the law. This is how the law works. It does not vary. It does not alter. And, I mean, for me, the deep math is what we call the multiplication table. But it still works there. Seven times seven. That's one I still remember. Because you need it for Bible prophecy. It's always 49. 
Do you know it is the same in any language of the world? Doesn't matter your culture, doesn't matter your religion, seven times seven is 49. And so there's actually great interest in math as explaining God because math is much deeper than, than the multiplication table. The argument is that mathematical laws, in order to be properly relied upon, must have attributes that indicate an origin in God. They are true everywhere. That means they're omnipresent. They're true always. They are eternal. They cannot be defied or defeated. That means they're omnipotent. They're rational and they have language characteristics that makes them personal. Notice what I just said. Math is omnipresent, omnipotent, eternal. It's omniscient. It has a personal relationship. It sounds like it expresses the mind of God. God loves when we explore who he is in math. Do you see numbers in the Bible? You got a whole book called Numbers. <laughs> but that's not what I'm talking about. You can see God uses math. He uses timing. He uses dates. He uses numbers in the Bible, in the temple, in dimensions. And God is a God of math. And you see God in his creation in the math. Look at the math in a flower. I mean, there's some flowers, they will always have the right number of petals. And if you find, what is it, a four-leaf clover? You say, you're, gonna, you're really in good luck. That's actually some kind of a, a freak. But, because uh, you can always count on the three-leaf clovers. Marijuana's got five leaves. It's always that way. Don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> but uh, so does a maple. So if you're from Canada, you're acquainted with both. Then you've got, um, <laughs> Albert Einstein said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. I mean, even in the math that God has written, Eugene Winger, a Nobel-winning mathematician, wrote, the enormous usefulness of mathematics in the natural sciences is something bordering on mysterious, and there's no rational explanation for it. Point number six, and can you prove there's a God, aside from the Bible? The concept of good and evil. The concept of good and evil. You know, actually, this is the point that many people turn to to say there can't be a God. They say if there was a God. Why is so many innocent people suffering? If God is all-powerful, all-knowing, why, why is there so much evil in the world? And the evil in the world proves there is no God. And I'd say, no, actually, evil proves there is a God. Not that God is evil. But the reason you know that there is evil is because God is good. How do you know, as C.S. Lewis said, how do you know a line is crooked unless you knew what straight was? The reason you are even able to identify evil is because there must be a definition for good. And what is that definition? And the Bible says, Jesus said, only God is good. Matter of fact, in English, we get the word God from good. When you tell a person, good morning, it used to originally be God morning. Because God and good are synonymous together. So, in order to protest against evil, a person must first have some transcendent idea of what is good. People around the world agree that evil must be restrained and punished. Even atheists agree with that, most of them. Why? If it is survival of the fittest, then what would it matter? Why? Is there any right or wrong? Is there any purpose to life? 
Why would atheists teach in a university? What good is knowledge? They say, oh, it's good to be informed. Why? How do you have any definition of what good and bad is unless there is some moral value, unless there's a God? Do you see what I'm saying? So all of it is going to eventually come back to there needs to be an original model for morals, for right and wrong, and that's going to indicate that there's a God, there's a creator. I was driving back, I think it's the next picture. I was driving home from work two days ago and during rush hour, and I came upon uh, at a light a group of geese. There are probably a dozen of them that were, I pulled out my camera and snapped this. Uh, it's very busy traffic. You can see there were actually three, one, one of them's not in the picture. Three adult geese were shepherding probably eight or ten baby geese through very busy traffic. Now at this point you see the light is red. The light wasn't red the whole time. And yet what do you think the cars did? Why did the cars stop and let these dumb goose cross the road? Doesn't evolution teach survival of the fittest? Shouldn't we prove that we with our cars are more intelligent than they are and just, you know, render them extinct? Why did everybody wait? And I bet some of them were atheists. <laughs> they waited for the goose to cross the road. <laughs> because you know what? Everybody has sort of a built-in intrinsic understanding. There is a self-evident truth of certain things being right and wrong. Amen. And we all knew intrinsically it would be wrong to hurt those innocent creatures, and especially when you saw the parents putting their lives on the line to try and get their flock across the road. I just thought to myself, this is even further evidence that people know that there must be a God. And then you've got, now this must be six. See, my notes folded where the numbers, I can't tell. Historical splash is what I call it. You know, evolutionists will say, yeah, the first men kind of were dragging their knuckles around the world for millions of years. And eventually when we started crossing over to where we got a soul, you know, there are people who say, I believe in evolution, but I believe in God in the Bible. I just think that at some point man in his evolution got where God could inject him with a soul. By the way, that's what the Catholic Church teaches. They accept evolution. Well, when did man become the image of God? At what point did his knuckles get high enough off the ground? We said, now he's like God. Or was it when he stopped dragging his wife by her hair? <laughs> As they have in the old pictures. But um, you look at history. Man splashes on the scene about 5,000 years ago. Ostensibly he goes from the Stone Age to building pyramids. Simultaneously all around the world. You'll find them in Central America. You'll find them in Asia. And there's even some great uh, structures in the South Pacific and uh, North American Indians and in Siberia, you just these massive, complicated structures, laser-cut rocks, engineering, mathematics, higher learning, moving great weights. When we were in uh, Jerusalem last week, Karen and I got a little tour underneath the Western Wall. They showed us some of the original stones that date back to the time of the first temple by Solomon. 
And you can understand why the disciples went to show Jesus the stones. They were so massive. And there's one stone there. It weighs more than a fully loaded 747 with all the tourist baggage. One stone. How did they move that? How did they cut it in perfect dimensions? They're like laser cut. We don't have any combination of equipment that can move them today. And they've got these, the Incas did it in South America. Man, suddenly springs on the scene of history and he's a genius. And somehow man has evolved 90% more brain than he needs. How would that happen? And even among the, um, the evolutionists, they admit something called the Cambrian explosion. Have you heard of that? They say that all around the world, at a certain time in their scheme of evolution, all these complex animals suddenly appeared. And I'm quoting from the evolutions. It says, it's a mystery how they suddenly appeared. Well, I don't think it's such a mystery. I think that God is able to create miraculously through fiat speaking. Winston Churchill said, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as though nothing had happened. The evidence is there if a person wants to know, is there a God? And uh, man, I think, is an example of that. He goes from building pyramids to building proton colliders. Look at how man, man's knowledge in history has just exploded in the last hundred years. Uh, smartphones and space stations and all that we're doing. That would suggest, just pre pretend for a moment that the stage here is a timeline and you've got this, this primitive animal-like, ape-like creature and he goes along, you know, and he's just, you know, he's hitting things with rocks and he's banging things with sticks and he's rubbing sticks together wondering if he'll ever invent fire. And he, all of a sudden, you get here and it goes like that in knowledge. It just explodes. That's a fact. Hard to deny that you just see all over the world there's this incredible intelligence that even if you look in geology, and that's not part of my list, it's interesting that the oldest trees they can find date back about the same time this incredible history of man splashes on the scene. There's a uh, writing man being able to record his thoughts. You and I are able to read the abstract thoughts. Why do we have consciousness? Where does consciousness come from? Even brain surgeons don't understand how exactly are thoughts and consciousness held organically in your body. We know that when you lose your brain you seem to have problems with your consciousness. But the way I'm able to communicate abstract thoughts that you're all processing right now, assuming you're listening, to what I'm saying. <laughs> See, you laughed. Sound waves I'm producing going through the air elicited a biological response to you. I mean, it's, it's a miracle. What, what happens? There has to be a God. So, and that, uh, that is my seventh point, is mankind. What a piece of work, Shakespeare said. What a piece of work is man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express, how admirable in action, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god. 
the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. Humans think in the abstract. We're able to record and communicate, now digitally record. We're free moral agents. We've got personalities. We're virtually unpredictable, unlike goldfish and ants. Um, people are so unique because the Bible says, Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image. Clearly man is the dominant species on the planet. You can see what he's made from the heavens. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the cattle and over all of the earth. Man has learned more in the last 200 years. We didn't know about microbes and microwaves and radio waves and light waves and there's so much that we've learned to think that just in this one generation God also has made us for relationship which is proof of God and God wants to have a relationship with us. Jeremiah 31.3 The Lord has appeared to me of old saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore with loving kindness I have drawn you. The Bible says we are made for eternity. Something somewhere inside us. Why is it all over the world until recently creatures, uh, people believe that there is a supreme being that made them, that they are accountable to, that they should worship. And I know there's great variations of how these different cultures and nations worship their God, but what, why is it that man is made with an, a consciousness that there is a supreme being? And it wasn't until the French Revolution, really, that atheism became a predominant view. Virtually all the world believed there was a God because it was logical. When you see all the design, in the universe, all the organization, all the interworking, all of the, the uh, symbiotic relationships that, that that should happen by accident. As someone said once, it's like saying you're going to throw a bomb into a box of used steel and you'll get a Rolex. It just doesn't happen. Whenever you see complicated design, it indicates there is a supreme designer. And God... The wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, believed in God. And he said in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he's made everything beautiful in its time and he's put eternity into their hearts. Yet the world is confused about God. Paul was walking through Athens one day where they had all the philosophers and he stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things, you're very religious, for I was passing through, I was considering all the idols that you worship, and I found you even at an altar to the unknown God. He says, therefore, the one that you worship not knowing, I proclaim to you. He said, there's one out there we don't know. Let me tell you about that one that you don't know. God has made everything beautiful in its time. You know, uh, this is maybe a, a subjective observation, but I'll never forget um, an experience and sometimes we believe in God because we have an experience. It's not a very good argument for me to say, I believe in God because I had an experience. That does nothing for you. But I'm going to tell you anyway. I was flying back into Sacramento. I don't remember where I was coming from. I just remember specifically I was sitting on the plane. I had a window seat, which normally I don't want. When you're young, you want the window seat. You get older, you want the aisle. I won't explain. <laughs> 
And, uh, but I had a window seat, and I was doing okay. And, and I had my own uh, iPad, I had earphones in, and I was listening to some beautiful, splendid music. And right about that time, we came under the cloud co cover to approach Sacramento. And it was, the sun was going down, but that meant on the horizon, the sun was actually shining up and hitting the bottom of the clouds instead of coming from the top. And it did something I can't explain with the colors as the sun was going down. It was one of those sunsets that if I had a camera and if I was outside of the plane, I could have gotten some money from National Geographic. You know, whenever you see those pictures, you think, where is my camera? And I saw this exquisite, splendid picture of beauty. And I was overwhelmed with a sense of worship. And it was the combination probably of what was coming into my eyes and the beautiful music in my ears. But I just thought, there has to be a God. This is so beautiful. If you're just a grunting animal, dragging around, clubbing things to death, where do you get your concept for beauty? Your concept for wanting to worship something outside of yourself that is hard to even comprehend. You wonder, do animals see beauty? Do animals look at a sunset? They may. And say, wow. You know, they bark to their friend. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> but, you know, you never forget an experience like that. And you say, my faith is not based on that. My faith is based on the word. But for those you're dealing with, if you meet people and they say, how do you know there's a God? If you can't tell them, well, because of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, which is a great argument itself, then there's these other things that you consider. There's plenty of evidence out there. But you know what some of the best evidence is? It's in Jesus. I know he is a biblical character, but history also records Jesus. You will find him recorded in history. In our recent tour of Israel, our, our uh, guide was an expert on Flavius Josephus who quoted that Jesus was a real character who lived in a real time, who was crucified. Now, if a person doesn't believe, and they're just believing a lie, and the, the, the apostles got together and said, hey, I'll tell you what, let's create our own religion. Maybe we can use it to raise money. And let's say this guy really rose from the dead. And let's say he did all these miracles. Let's make this whole thing up. You know, if you get a, a few people that know that there's a conspiracy, it doesn't last long. Somebody leaks. Somebody caves in. I remember a few years ago meeting Chuck Colson. He was part of the Nixon Watergate scandal. He's one of the insiders. And there was a conspiracy, and they admitted it. And Colson, who was also an attorney, he went to jail for his crime. He was converted in jail. And uh, he tells how as soon as they realized, they all said, we'll stand for the president. We're going to deny everything. But as soon as they realized they were going to jail and the attorney generals began to interview them, it didn't take very long for one of them to say, I'll turn on all the others if you'll spare me. They were so ready to, to lie and tell the truth, whatever they had to do to save their skin, they all ended up turning and confessing. Said, but with the apostles, they never changed their story. They were stoned, they were beaten, they went into strange countries, they were tortured, they came away from the torture and they kept saying the same thing, that Jesus was the Son of God, even to the point of being beheaded like Paul or crucified like Peter. 
If it was a made-up story, all the evidence would say, wow, that is the best trick that's ever been pulled in civilization, that they could keep it together, every one of them, put their lives on the line, that we were witnesses of these things. And that's how John ends the Bible. He says, I, John, saw these things are true. So if you believe the Bible, there's no question. But even if you're just going to look at history, Christ said, the things that I teach, they'll never be forgotten. It's going to go into all the world. How did he know that? He's an uneducated uh, carpenter. It happened, didn't it? So in Christ, the idea that someone would live a perfect sinless life and show so much love, that's further evidence that God is a living God. And so, friends, I would like to submit to you that, uh, you know, I, I would like to close, actually, with a scripture. The Bible tells us in Psalm 90, if you'd like to turn there with me real quick. It's actually, sorry, Psalm, um, yeah, no, Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you have formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is eternal. Amen, friends? Amen.